0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu.
1: With your favorite reality TV shows in one place, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Start
2: your
0: free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com.
1: Hey there, Paula Poundstone
2: here. I hate to interrupt, but maybe you might like to listen to my new show, live from the Poundstone Institute, where I talk to researchers about interesting studies. It's like hidden brain, except our brains are really well hidden. Find it now on the
0: NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we are watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. This week, we'll swing across the skies with Spider-Man Homecoming. Then, a talk about the very silly HBO sports mockumentary Tour de Pharmacy. And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. Before we get started here in Historic Studio 44, let's introduce the panel.
3: I'm Stephen Thompson with NPR Music. I'm Glenn Weldon, I write for the NPR website.
0: And in our fourth chair this week, the host of NPR's afternoon flagship news magazine, All Things Considered, and one of our favorite people in the building, Audie Cornish. Hi, Audie. Hey there, Linda. It's always so nice to have Audie in the room. Now, there's been no shortage of big-screen Spider-Man adaptations. Spidey was rebooted very successfully in 2002 with star Tobey Maguire and director Sam Raimi. It was then rebooted in 2012, less successfully with star Andrew Garfield and director Mark Webb. But now, Marvel is ready to marry its master of arachnoid adventure with the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, That meant that a new Spider-Man, played by Tom Holland, showed up in 2016 in Captain America Civil War. Now, Spider-Man Homecoming, directed by John Watts and written by committee, gives Holland's (laughs) Peter Parker his own playground adjacent to the ones the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been building since Iron Man in 2008. Here, Holland shares the screen with Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, Marissa Tomei as Aunt May, and Michael Keaton as Vulture. Glenn, what are your Spider-Man feelings up to this point?
2: Um, I certainly like the Tobey Maguire, mostly because of Raimi, Sam Raimi, the director. Uh, I thought the Andy Garfields were fine, but unexceptional. Yeah. Uh, I think this, however, is how you friggin' do it. You lean into the comedy, and you keep the scale small. The reason this feels so fresh is that for the first time, we know... In the real world, uh, Spider-Man is Marvel's flagship character, the biggest gun that they have. But here, he's being treated as sea C-lister, and that's the first time they could do that because up to now, he was alone in his universe. Now he is just a kid who is learning the ropes. And back when Iron Man 2 came out, I had this big brand theory that the reason Iron Man 2 didn't feel satisfactory is because it wasn't an origin story. And we love origin oh, stories. Man. We need origin stories. That was back in the late Jurassic when Iron Man 2 came out, <laughs> yeah. and mu- much has changed. And here, we don't get the origin story, which I think is crucial, but we do get something that I, I think now might be the key. We get the training montage. Sure. He's learning the ropes. It doesn't matter where he got bit by the damn spider, what matters is he's a kid and he's learning, and it works.
0: Yeah. Um, Audie, I don't think of you as a person who loves every superhero movie, but I also I don't- discerning. But yeah. I also don't think <laughs> yeah. of you as a person who goes in against uh, superhero movies. How did you react to this one?
1: Well, I did sit down uh, next to Glenn in the theater, and I said, I'm here under duress Uh because I have felt so much like I don't need another Spider-Man. It's not that I don't like this story. I just didn't need another one. Uh And by the end of it, they had totally turned it around for me and totally convinced me not only that I like Spider-Man still as a story, but that this one, if you're going to be introduced to one, if there's going to be one every five years and you're (laughs) going to be a 16-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid who gets introduced to it, this is great. You know, I would trade this for the Tobey Maguire one. I don't know if that's, if you're allowed to say that, but I You're allowed to
0: say anything.
1: (laughs) It's just like, I actually didn't miss those when I saw this. And I think it's because it's, it's actually kind of a teen movie in a way that a we're not really making anymore. I'm not seeing out of Hollywood like a movie with teenagers or at least people pretending to be teenagers. Right. So if you underscore the homecoming part of Spider Man Homecoming, I think you'll walk into this with like a better idea of what you're walking into. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: How about you, Thompson?
1: Yeah, I had uh, much the same reaction as, as both of you both
3: of you guys. I appreciated the fact that it was a very light on its feet teen movie. That it was a teen comedy, mm-hmm. uh, and I also really did appreciate the things that it doesn't bother to include. It doesn't bother to tell you that with great power comes great responsibility. It doesn't bother to have him get bitten by a spider, as, as, as you said. And it just focuses largely on dispensing kind of light action and jokes, jokes, jokes. The fact that there are, I think, six build screenwriters in this movie portends this kind of committee driven mess and yet it feels like all those writers were there just punching up the script i really enjoyed that and i think bringing in michael keaton as as the heavy kind of coming full circle at one point he he's you know he's sort of wearing his vulture gear and he looks just like birdman mm-hmm. and i like the fact like everybody thought birdman was michael keaton coming full circle this is michael keaton coming full circle i really just enjoyed this movie enormously
0: interesting glenn how did you feel about the keaton role because i've i've heard you know other people talk about thinking this was a really effective marvel villain i found him a little Generic.
2: Well, it, it's a smart tweaking of the character because the character is an old man in a vulture suit. He's a different kind of vulture. He's a scavenger. He takes all this alien weaponry and he sells it to the highest bidder uh, and also uses some of it himself.
3: Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think they do a nice job of undercutting his villainy with certain sympathetic qualities that I think are really useful. And it kind of, for me, harkened back to one of the things I really loved about particularly Spider-Man 2 in the Sam Raimi universe, where you have that wonderful performance by Alfred Molina as Dr. Octopus, who is a supervillain that you care about and sympathize with and understand how he got to this point. And I think that they do a nice job of making... Michael Keaton, more than just a, a. I think he's more than a generic baddie. I think they have nice ways of undercutting that and making him sympathetic.
0: Yeah. One of the things I think is interesting about the reception to the movie, which has been, you know, in my experience, mostly positive, is that when the first trailers came out, they seemed to be playing up in the trailers the presence of Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr. And in fact, in the movie, that presence is quite light. Mm -hmm. But based on the trailers, there were people who were saying it looks like what they've actually done is make an Iron Man movie. And that's not true at all. I will say, when I watched Robert Downey Jr. in this movie, I thought, I don't know that there's as much charm for me in seeing him do some of this as there originally was. Mm -hmm. And it's curious to see to see them decide that essentially the best use of Iron Man, at least in this movie, the best use of Tony Stark slash Iron Man, is to introduce somebody else, somebody new, rather than just doing more Tony Stark Iron Man stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, he's kind of a jerk.
0: Mm -hmm. Iron Man. Oh yeah. (laughs) yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like absolutely. I mean,
1: even in this movie they do play up that angle of him being this billionaire Kind of a corporate shark type who's actually not that great, right? That sets off some oh, yeah. of the villainy and i I somewhat appreciate that, and I think that that's a it's a flawed character who you're supposed to root for, and seeing him try to be paternal was sort of amusing mm-hmm. in moments. but like I'm not a person who like likes. <laughs> Tony Stark as yeah. a person in any of these movies. I always think, like, I think we'd all kind of hate him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If he really existed. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. No question. Uh, but since it's Robert Downey Jr., it's sort of like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Yeah,
3: it's it's he's there to sell the movie as much as, as much as anything. He and does
1: I mean, a good job. I mean, I think one thing I really liked about this movie that by partnering... And Glenn can break this down, the sort of studio partnership of like Sony actually getting to acknowledge the rest of this comic universe. Uh It gets to do something which you also see in the Netflix superhero movies where they acknowledge a world where superheroes and aliens exist. Uh And but on a very small scale, these like kind of small scale local superheroes Uh like Jessica Jones or Uh Luke Gage they're not involved in all of that, right? Mm-hmm. They might be solving their little neighborhood hijinks, right. but they're not tearing down skyscrapers. right? And their friends and relatives will make kind of jokes here and there about like, I don't know what's going on these days. You know, there's a guy with a hammer out there. like. Yeah. And I, I always find that very, I'm always amused by that kind of acknowledgement that like, yeah, we all can kind of get used to anything right. if you think mm-hmm. about it. <laughs>
2: they're not just keeping it grounded, they're keeping it interconnected, which yeah. of course is one of the main appeals of the Marvel it universe. It really
1: worked. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes I Because I'm like, there's so many of these movies, and I just feel like Mm. this is going to be, you know, the boomers will have their like great cinema, and we'll have this, and we'll like have to explain (laughs) this to our kids. But, you know, if when they make little efforts like that, that seem like, okay, we have built a world then I can appreciate that. This film is actually more attuned to our contemporary society than a lot of other superhero
2: films have been. A, because you've got a villain with a grievance that we've heard a lot. B, because they understand something about nerds, which is it's changed. The world has changed. When Spider-Man was created back in the 60s, Peter Parker was a nerd in a sweater vest who was bullied by Flash Thompson, who was a jock in a Letterman sweater. And when they made the original Tobey Maguire films, they kind of kept that dynamic. And they kind of played with it with the Andrew Garfield dynamic a little bit as well. Here, everybody's at a science tech magnet school because nerds have taken over, and everybody's a nerd. And that is reflected in the film. His bully is played by Tony Revolori, who is not a bully bully, but a guy who makes fun of him while DJing. Yeah, and
0: and (laughs) he was in, uh, who you might know from the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yes,
2: exactly. So it's it's a different world. It's a, a more contemporary world.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I like about it. It is that I think they do a good job of making the movie about what they want it to be about on a larger level, on a kind of a meta macro level, which is Spider-Man joining the Marvel Cinematic Universe. A lot of times that can sound like a totally a marketing thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we're bringing Spider-Man into the Marvel Cinematic Universe so that they can all be part of the same line of, of plastic cups. <laughs> um, but this movie is really about the integration of, of him into this team and whether it is to happen at all and how it might happen if it were to happen. The other thing I like about it that is related to that is the Marvel movies have a very interesting relationship with the suit, mm-hmm. I, I think. There is the suit that you can make on your own, and there is the suit that is a superhero suit. There's the suit that says, I'm taking this responsibility. And then there's the suit that you get that is the suit you've earned. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And there is a, uh, there's a version of an early suit in the Captain America movies mm-hmm. that, that, are, that inspires his ultimate kind of super suit. There is some great stuff, particularly in Iron Man 3, about him when he has the suit, when he doesn't have the suit. There's a great shot of him dragging the suit. Mm-hmm. Um and I think this movie, too, has a really interesting relationship with how it's not just a matter of there's Peter Parker and there's Spider-Man, but there are different ideas of what it means to be a hero. And I think one of the things that they use this integration into the into the Avengers, whether it's ever going to happen fully or not, I think one of the things they're playing with and one of the ways they convey it, is with the costuming stuff, Uh because you have the one that kind of looks like jammies, (laughs) and then you have the other one. Uh And they're
1: trying to say the person still matters. Right. Which I think in a big summer blockbuster where there's just so much computers and machinery and stuff, I think they're trying to make an attempt to say, yeah, we do actually care about the character. Right. And, and in fact, I
3: found the stuff about the character the most interesting and the most exciting. I think mm-hmm. where this movie is the least exciting for me is when a fairy gets sawed in half and he has yeah. to stitch it together. And then it feels it feels more like a, like a typical action set piece. Whereas... I I could just sit and watch his like silly buddy Ned over here wisecracking all day. Like I, I just found I found the part of it that is a high school comedy actually in ways more exciting yeah. than the parts that are a typical superhero film.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, they know what they're doing in terms of comedy. They have uh, the staff of the school, played by Hannibal Buress and yeah. Martin Starr, uh, an unrecognizable Martin Starr, because <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, he's got an effect in this one. And also, Donald Glover figures largely, uh, well, not largely, but he figures in a way that is perfect and yeah. wonderful.
1: Uh, and to that point about Donald Glover, um, I think this movie makes excellent use of him, because he was part of this, like, controversial discussion about whether or not Spider-Man could be cast as a person of color. He was a name. People had briefly, like, a social media campaign around him having the role. And at the time, I remember being really kind of annoyed because it seemed like if you're going to have a kid who's essentially, like, an orphan in Queens and it's New York, like, that's not a hard thing to do to make that person (laughs) a person of color. And I always resented comics fans who acted as though it would be breaking canon to do that. I think the movie does a good job of, like, trying to make up for it, so to speak, in the casting around him. Not just the kids, the fact that they're actually somewhat young, (laughs) right? (laughs) They at least remotely could be teenagers recently, and it felt that way in some scenes, especially with extras. But it's a diverse American high school. It felt like a recognizable place. Mm -hmm. And even in the Spidey montage where he's... uh, solving local crimes like practicing there's not that much crime right Right. because let's face it crime in New York is not what it was Mm -hmm. when these comics were created so he literally has to like try and get back a stolen bike which isn't really stolen (laughs) you know he's like Mm -hmm. giving someone directions Mm -hmm. like New York is not that crime ridden place that it was when these comics were created and I like that the movie acknowledged both the diversity of the city and also the reality of like how you would train you know to fight crime right now yeah
0: and I feel like the casting not just the casting but also the creation of the high school kids who are around him is a little more interesting than you sometimes get I really kind of dig this the Zendaya performance mm -hmm. as this girl named Michelle who you don't you don't get a lot of the the filling in of her. You get the feeling that a lot of that is meant to happen later. Yeah. Which,
1: for the actress, this is like her version of doing Monster yeah. for Shirley's sure, there on. Because like, <laughs> yeah. she's so glamorous. Yeah. You can yeah. tell she's like, I'm going to wear a ponytail I, for this one. <laughs> but I like, I
0: like her in this. And I also, you know, you mentioned Ned, the yeah. friend... To me, Ned is a chubby best friend without being the chubby best friend. Yeah, absolutely. You don't see him eating all the time. You don't see him running, you know, in a way that's meant to be like, oh, look at the kid trying to run. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't treat him differently for that reason. No, they treat him as an audience surrogate. It's just that it's part of the it's just that he's one of the many people you meet in the movie. And I, I did appreciate that a lot. And we haven't even really talked at all about Tom Holland in this role. And I have pointed this out on Twitter a couple times, and I apologize for for being so insufferable (laughs) about it. But when I saw Tom Holland years ago in The Impossible, which is the movie with Naomi Watts uh, about the tsunami, Mm -hmm. he was really a a young kid. And he's he's also been a theater kid. He was in Billy Elliot, the musical, and is a song and dance kid. Um, But... When I saw him in The Impossible, even though, you know, that is not the lead role in that movie, I looked at that kid and I thought, that is a really interesting kid. He has great, curious, thoughtful eyes, and he has kind of a keenly aware way of being. And I think he does bring some of that to this role, which helps put some meat on the bones of what could otherwise be kind of like a wide-eyed and just saying g whiz all the time Just right. saying gee whiz all the time you do get a really interested engaged kind of vibe off of him, which I think really helps.
2: This film feels a lot more like Ant-Man than The Avengers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's intentional.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will be curious to hear what all of you have to say about Spider-Man Homecoming. Come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pchh or tweet at us at pchh and tell us what you thought about uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, Michael Keaton, Zendaya, Tom Holland, and uh, men who climb up buildings. When we come back, we're going to talk about Tour de Pharmacy, the comedy special from HBO. So come right back.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from Netflix's Contodo, Presenting Brown Love, a new podcast that aims to bring together the best and brightest of Latino Hollywood to get real about the industry and all the things Latinx communities are talking about on your timeline. Each week, the show features a roundtable of Latino actors, including Diane Guerrero from Orange is the New Black and Jessica Marie Garcia from On My Block. New episodes of Brown Love drop every Tuesday. Subscribe now where you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Andy Samberg got famous as a Saturday Night Live goofball, but since he left the show in 2012, he stayed very busy. He's the lead in the Fox comedy series Brooklyn Nine Nine, but he's also stayed active, making music and comedy with his troupe, The Lonely Island. Last summer he starred in the woefully unappreciated mm, Not by us. I agree. We, Not, we
2: appreciate we it. We loved it.
0: There we go. Satire, <laughs> pop star, never stop, never stopping. And in twenty fifteen, he and writer Murray Miller made the sports mockumentary. Seven Days in Hell, a ridiculous and filthy HBO special starring Samberg and Kit Harrington from Game of Thrones as rival tennis players. Now, Samberg is back with Murray and Seven Days in Hell director Jake Szymanski with a similar HBO project switching the focus to cycling. Tour de Pharmacy is now available on HBO and all your streaming and on-demand platforms, I am sure. And its enormous cast includes Kevin Bacon, Orlando Bloom, Jeff Goldblum, John Cena, David. Dick and others far too numerous to list. Now, I do want to establish, as you might have heard hinted during that introduction, uh, we really liked Popstar Mm -hmm. quite a bit. Andy Samberg was not always my cup of tea, and that's partly because on Saturday Night Live, he seemed like Adam Sandler. And his persona post-Saturday Night Live has proved to be, in some cases, a little more sweet. Not
2: just sweet, but smaller. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. But this is not the smaller Andy Samberg. (laughs) This is the other. (laughs) What's not the smaller Andy Samberg? This is the blown out. It's the full Samberg. This is the. (laughs) Yeah, not the full Samberg in this movie, but the full somebody is in this movie. It's full of many people. Um. So the basic gist here is it is about a season, a cycling of the Tour de France, where, you know, it's from uh, long ago. So you get the, the the supposed archival footage. That's when you see Andy Sandberg and Orlando Bloom and some of those guys. Then you get the modern day interviews, which is where you get some of the other...
1: The talking heads, casting, sports, mockumentary part of it.
0: We're going to spoil here because it's not... Uh, that much of a spoilable. And we're just,
3: spo- oh yeah, and we're spoiling casting. Exactly, you
0: I do think some of the casting jokes are funny. Like Jeff Goldblum mm-hmm. as grown-up Andy Samberg. Yep, I see it a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> Dolph Lundgren as grown-up John Cena. Uh-huh. I see it. It makes sense to me.
1: And Danny Glover as the David Diggs, adult That's version of right. Daveed Diggs with a wonderful wig on. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: quite a
1: wig on. That's all for
2: costumes. You said this was just the big Andy Samberg. I, I disagree slightly. It goes back and forth because there are so many jokes and they're so all over the map. You get big joke, like there's a Will Forte bit, which is pretty big. Yep. And uh-huh. then you get... Uh, Maya Rudolph, little aside from Maya Rudolph. Then you get a big John Cena being roided out guy, which I thought was going to be this whole thing. I thought this whole thing was just going to be one steroid joke after another. Uh John Cena, John Cena, John Cena. But then you get, you cut back to Nathan Fielder. And yeah. Every time Nathan Fielder is on the screen, he is my rock. He's just doing nothing. He's just listing all the drugs that are in people's systems. But it is so funny because it's so small. It's so pulled back. And he plays
0: back.
1: like the cycling organization drug
2: testing yeah. director, yes. right?
1: I don't know this actor at all, oh so my God, I he's was so really delighted. Funny. Where by might
0: it? Where, where might people know him? Uh,
2: Nathan, know? for you, is a series where he uh, gives people terrible advice, and they follow it. The series is more about him and his schlubby affect than it is about his advice. It's very funny.
3: Part of the fun of Nathan Fielder in this is that he's dry. Yeah. There's a lot of very big outward comedy and to have a little bit of inward comedy really helps. Yep. I also just enjoyed that the... the the ability and willingness, and this is true both in uh, Tour de Pharmacy and in Seven Days in Hell, of a willingness to just wander off course. And it, it gives you just this sense overall, if you take Seven Days in Hell and Tour de Pharmacy and put them together, they are not quite a feature-length <laughs> movie. So, so the stakes of this thing and the lift of this thing as an audience member are so slight that if, if there's one joke with full frontal nudity that you don't enjoy, there's another joke with full frontal nudity that you might. Mm -hmm. And so I just found these things incredibly fun and silly and slight and very fast moving in ways that I just, I got a kick out of it. I mean, what is the hit rate on the jokes? It's not. 90% 90% no. Yeah, it's you know even if it's 40%
1: good enough it's good enough it's fun <laughs> I'll take it I'll take it These to go days, back to yeah. your, your point though I think the show single handedly aimed to address the HBO gender imbalance on full frontal <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah. I wasn't sure whether to commend them <laughs> 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 or really really object uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh.
3: Uh,
2: you know I don't care about sports I think I don't need to restate my position there and I don't care about the Tour de France uh, I-, I watched this with friends who are not Sporty, don't care, and they were laughing, and they were laughing, and then something happened. As mm-hmm. soon as Lance yep. Armstrong <laughs> spoiler comes okay, on screen, spoiler, folks. it's not a spoiler. It's, it's
3: kind it's of right. well, he's Sorry. on in the first five minutes.
2: Their laughter <laughs> dried up completely. Yeah, every time he came on screen, and I was like, "What's going on here?" Yeah. And they were like, "That's <laughs> hashtag is, too soon." This is souring me because he cheated. They said he <laughs> cheated, and uh, it was just fascinating to me.
0: It's not that he cheated. I'm going to make an argument here, yeah. which is not that he cheated. It's that he cheated, he vehemently denied cheating, and really came hard after anybody who said that he did. Mm-hmm. And then when he quote unquote sort of apologized mm-hmm. in a conversation with Oprah, it wasn't a very satisfying apology. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not just the too soon, it's the didn't do the time kind yep. of thing. Yeah. There's almost a sentence that people expect you to serve, which is you have to fully admit you were wrong, and you have to fully acknowledge what you did, and then you have to wait for some time to pass, and then they will be very forgiving. Mm. I think Lance Armstrong has a specific problem, public image-wise, and it's almost like his specific problem is exactly the thing that this is meant to address. Like What he wants to do in this movie is say, it's over, now I'm in on the joke, everybody Mm -hmm. likes me again. Because several of my critic friends commented on this, too. And I think the problem is it feels like a push for absolution for somebody who hasn't done what people expect public figures to do before they can be absolved. Hmm. And that is apologize and acknowledge what they did. I think because he doesn't people don't feel like he's done the work. They aren't as ready as they might be with with other people which um.
1: is underscored by the presence of a one Mike Tyson. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Where is he right so, there. So, <laughs> and I don't know if the guys doing the movie knew that and that's what they were trying to show, but Mike Tyson, I'm not going to say he's apologized somewhere because I didn't dig that deep in the Wikipedia page, but he certainly served time for mm-hmm. his various crimes. Yeah. But he's also, like gone on literal apology tours done a Broadway show written multiple books about his past and how he feels about it done lots of it, stuff making fun there's, of himself and lots of stuff making fun of himself but also people the thing aren't that, ready for
0: that either. Not right? yeah. at all not no.
1: at all but I'm just saying like I was watching this and thinking Armstrong you're not even at Tyson levels yet right. exactly. so I don't know who you think you are I agree. rolling up in here <laughs> trying to make a joke now okay <laughs> like right. I agree. do a couple memoirs and maybe I can understand what happened but that thing you said about him going after people who accused him and who were you know uh, unveiling the truth about what was happening he was vicious and so the jokes here don't acknowledge anything like that the joke is just his presence in a movie that's supposed to be a joke about drug use (laughs) in cycling yeah but uh your presence is not a present sorry (laughs) jay-z would say it feels like a casting coup that that, totally. That oh, we got him. They're so excited. Yeah,
3: that threatens to kind of run away with what the show is, and and any time it draws away from that and back into bits like uh, Andy Samberg <laughs> represents the continent of Africa because yeah. he's the son of a diamond miner. Yeah. <laughs> like there, there's enough. There's enough other stuff. I do agree that it kind of grinds to a halt with the Lance Armstrong stuff, in part because as an audience member, you're sitting there like, how did they get him to do this? Yeah,
1: like, absolutely.
0: I mean, I. I, I think there are a bunch of ways you can feel about doping itself, about sort of what the what the moral components of doping are or not. It's all the other stuff. Yeah. And I think if you watch, there's been some documentary work made around him and around cycling. And I think that, you know, I think some of that is hard to watch. And, and I didn't mean like, to
1: imply that Tyson is absolved, especially no, I know. for some of his I know. more serious crimes. I know. The thing you were talking about, about the time spent in a public... Redemption mode has just been much longer and more public than Lance's essentially sorry, not sorry. And then we haven't seen him since. Right.
0: But Stephen mentioned something else that I also want to talk about, which is the relatively short length of these pieces of Seven Days in Hell and also of Tour de Pharmacy. I do think that this idea of like a 35, 40 minute comedy short film is something that... I don't know if we had a good distribution mechanism mm-hmm. for that prior to kind of the explosion of cable and all that right. stuff. And I don't know that there have been a lot of people who have made made much out of the idea of the standalone, non-feature-length comedy special, scripted special. Right. Sort of functioning like a stand-up special would, except it's a comedy, it's a scripted comedy special. Yeah, he
2: switched in this from doing kind of what was a twofer with him and Kit Harington in the mm-hmm. tennis thing, to really an ensemble piece. Mm-hmm. He's in this, but he doesn't dominate. Right, now that's uh, true. I'm talking about Eddie Samberg now. Right. Uh, and because he's busy, right? But all these people are busy, and they all kind of come in, do a thing, and then they're out of the, of the filmette. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think that s- speaks to me of a certain kind of, a brand of restraint that I appreciate. Because if this thing, if this one joke, was an hour and a half. Oh my God. Uh,
0: (laughs) And how many times have you seen that? How many times have you seen something where the first 20 minutes of a funny thing are funny and then it's clear that that's all there is. Mm -hmm. It's clear that they ran out of, like they had a funny idea and the only thing to do with your funny idea, if it's not going to be a series, is to make a feature film. So they wind up making an entire feature film, you know, because it'll be like, oh, what if Michael Sarah and Jack Black were cavemen? And yeah. instead of being able to make like a half hour thing, they make year one. Yeah. Which is feature length and bleh. God
1: bless you for remembering that. Hey,
0: I went to the <laughs> screening like, of that to the smartphones.
1: Because I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I
0: am gonna ring that experience out until I've gotten every drop of Value. I suffer. spent that hour and a half of my life. Well, maybe anyway. it's
1: Sandberg leaning into his strengths because if his strengths on SNL, right? It's the digital short. Mm-hmm. Yes. So much of this felt like a bunch of digital shorts Absolutely. sewn right. together, right. especially those digressions people are talking mm-hmm. about, which are very funny. But also it felt like that moment at Saturday right. Night Live when you're like, all right, now we're going to just see a silly thing for, you know, two minutes.
0: Yeah, it's it's the uh I can't remember where I read about it. It might have been in a book about SNL, but they talk about the. The concept of dropping the cow, which is just you get to the end of a sketch, and even if you don't have an ending, you just drop a cow on the whole thing, and then it's over. Just because <laughs> nobody has anything else to do, and so often you wish they would drop the cow sooner. That explains so Saturday much Night about Live. that
1: program. You need to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bookmark I don't,
0: that for me. Like I said, i got to look up where I got it from. Yeah. But, uh, so cow anyway, droppings. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Tour de Pharmacy is available on all of your HBO streaming services, and uh, we'll be interested to hear what you think about it. Uh, find us on Facebook or on Twitter. When we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment of this week. And every week, what is making us happy this week? So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It is time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week. Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, sir?
3: Uh, last week, for the first time in four years, we got a new song by one of my favorite bands, Rye. It's spelled R-H-Y-E. Kind of a, just like a sexy soul Band but just very restrained and quiet and pretty, lots of pianos, very subtle and what I love the song' called "Please" uh, and, it's, and it's gorgeous actually let's hear a little bit of it now) oh, baby. Oh. Rye is led by a guy named Mike Milosh, uh, and his his specialty, I think, has come to be uh, these very intimate, very warm, very pretty soul songs that are kind of they feel like they're by and for the already coupled. So the songs aren't necessarily like these big, grandiose statements of seduction, so much as like, you're tired, I'm tired.
0: Huh? <laughs> 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 and I think, and I think... Steven's like, my kindest of seduction. <laughs> yeah, and I that. think, I think
3: that is, that is the kind of, th- there is something to that kind of songwriting that is filling a niche that like so much, so much songwriting is about like attaining love And these songs are about retaining love, and I think that's cool, and they're also sexy and beautiful. I also just love the music. Like, it's just gorgeously produced. So, anyway, the return of Rye after four very long years with a gorgeous song called Please.
0: Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week?
2: Often of a summer, uh, NPR Books will do a reader's poll. They've done mystery, they've done science fiction, they've done name your favorite uh, romance. This year, we're not doing a genre, we're doing a medium, and that medium is something I know a little bit about, comics and graphic novels. Now, this project is really Petra Mayer's, and I'm sort of helping out on it, but uh, we ask people to tell us their favorite comics or graphic novel, and the list is pleasantly... Weird and idiosyncratic We were worried, the judging panel, and I served on the judging panel That it would turn out to be the usual suspects The usual NPR suspects Your mouse, Persepolis, Fun Home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, spoiler, guess what? They're on there But when you ask people to name their favorite You're not asking them the best You're not asking them the mm-hmm. most important or influential You're asking them a very personal thing And that's what showed up on the list Now the judging panel consisted of me Another NPR uh, book critic, uh, Talka Lohoski uh, Maggie T... Toompson? How would you say that? I think Meg- it's...
3: I think it's to-
2: There's an umlaut. There's it's an umlaut t- oh, Meg- gosh. <laughs> the great Spike Trotman from Iron Circus and somebody named G. Willow Wilson. And it was a great discussion because we got to kind of balance out the list a little bit and fill in some stuff that we love that didn't get... Because when you ask somebody today their favorites, you're not going to get some of the old mm-hmm. uh, classics. You're going you're gonna to get new favorites, which makes the list a great vehicle for finding new stuff. There's a lot of web comics on here, so if you're looking to see something uh, and get a, a good recommendation, just check out the Summer Reader's Poll on Comics and Graphic Novels on NPR Books right now.
0: Nice. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Can Uh, I ask something? Is uh it helpful if you don't know
1: much about this world? Do you feel like it's a good introduction list?
2: Well, I had to write uh, 50, 200-word blurbs about uh, different comics, and Petra wrote the other 50, and we endeavored to make those things a little bit more approachable, a little explaining- a, what this is, you know, summarize seventy-five years of comics.
1: In <laughs> I'm in. I'm what in. I mean, if you've easier? done the work, I'm mean. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, <laughs> it
2: it is. It, it's everything that, that's on the list had to kind of justify its presence. There was a lot of back and forth on the judging panel, so yeah, uh, it was a lot of fun.
0: Wonderful. Thank you very much. Audie Cornish, what is making you happy this week? I'm bringing
1: two news articles, womp womp, um, but there are two (laughs) (laughs) pieces of entertainment criticism that I liked in the last couple of days. One is from The Hollywood Reporter. It's by the author's Tim Goodman. It's called The Post-Review, Post-Premiere, Post-Finale World of Peak TV. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of writing about Peak TV. What I like about this is it explores the idea of, like what, what does this mean for the criticism and writing that is out there? We often run into this problem doing the show even today where we're like spoiler not a spoiler Uh is a thing not a thing it's on streaming not sure what does a finale mean when everything might be dropped all at once handmaid's tale kind of tried to take a different tact on hulu by not dropping it all at once and it just i think for people who are into the TV that's out there now and also sometimes feel not just overwhelmed by it, but overwhelmed by the writing about it. Mm -hmm. It was a nice little attempt to get your arms around what's happening in this moment. So that is at The Hollywood Reporter. And the second article is called, uh, In the Age of Streaming TV, Who Needs Title Sequences? And this was at The Verge. The author is Lance Richardson. It's not a very long article, but it gets at the idea of like, why don't we get rid of the opening title sequence. Like, who needs a theme song? Who needs any of this stuff in an age when you might be binge watching television? And then, of course, I thought of all the shows that I watch, where that little song, like House of Cards, is a great example mm-hmm. of a really beautiful opening sequence. A show that no one watches but me and Glenn since eight <laughs> mm-hmm. poured a lot of money into yeah. creating its title sequence. Mm-hmm. I watched The Night Manager two years behind everyone else. It has a beautiful opening title sequence, which I think might have been done by the same people who do Westworld. And we have, it's a little bit like cover art on Mm -hmm. music, Mm -hmm. right? You Mm -hmm. still, people are still actually putting some effort into cover art. And it did make me wonder, like, why do we need this? And the author explores and actually interviewed some showrunners about making that call, making that decision, and some who actually tried to get rid of it Mm -hmm. in place of the title card, which we see sometimes, which is just... Name of the show. It's and the then, thing <laughs>
0: Lost. Yeah. And then
1: that's it. You're in it. Yeah. Anyway, so that was In the Age of Streaming TV, Who Needs Title Sequences at The Verge?
0: Wonderful. My happy is going to be very fast because then I have a little bit of show news to catch you up on. My happy, one of the first things that I talked about in an early episode of the show as something making me happy this week was a website called Budget Bites where I was getting a lot of really good recipes, one of which is dragon noodles, which uh, many people have told me since then that they made. So one of the things making me happy this week is that Budget Bites has a an app. So go out and find it. Uh, I have downloaded it and uh, am in the process of trying it. It has some of her recipes. She talks you through it. It's Budget Bites, obviously, B-Y-T-E-S, and uh, and I recommend it. So some show news. Next week, you're going to hear a little bit of a format change in the show. And what we're doing, it is, spoiler alert, not either more or less show, but rather than the entire show with two topics and uh, what's making us happy coming out once a week... We're going to have two episodes a week. One will be one topic, one will be the other topic, and uh, what's making us happy this week, which will still be on Friday. Now, what this means for you, if you have a routine that you like, where you like to hear two topics and what's making us happy on Friday, you can still just listen to them both on Friday. Nothing need really change for you. But uh, hopefully this is going to allow us to be a little bit more timely, and we hope to be able to use more different fourth chairs. And for a bunch of reasons, we're going to try this for a while. And see how it works And so as I said uh, If you like the show the way that you get it now You can always still listen to both on Friday But uh, we're going to be coming to you twice a week Starting next week week. So you don't have to change anything about your podcast feed. You don't have to uh, do anything different. But let us know what you think. Again, we are on Facebook. You can always come and find us there. Let us know what you think on Twitter. The only thing I'm going to tell you about the long, boring meetings about this kind of thing, which you don't <laughs> need to know about, is I give you my word. These are uh, This was done to try to make the show work better for more people. There's nothing nefarious or gross about it. So let us know what you think. We really want to know how it works for you and how it's going to work for us and we hope that it's going to make it a better show that fits better into your schedule and all that stuff. So that will be happening starting next week. So expect to hear an episode in only the next few days as you hear this. How exciting. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPRMonkeyC, Steven at I Dislike Steven, Glenn at G.H. Weldon, Audie at NPR Audie, our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy, and our producer emeritus and music director Mike Katzef at Mike Katzoff, K-A-T C-I-F. Mike's Band Hello Come In provides our in and out music, which you are tapping your foot to right now so thanks to all of you guys for being here thank Thank you. you and thanks to all of you for listening and we will see you right back here next week